Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity, with your host, Christina Pratt, director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. Thank you all for joining us this afternoon. I'd like to call in the spirits to gather around us here today. I call in our ancestors, my own, those of our guests, Betsy Bergstrom, and all of the ancestors of all of the people listening here today. I call in those helping those ancestors who are ready to be here as helping spirits who bring all that is good and true and beautiful in our family lines to us that we might learn from those who have gone before us. It is on their shoulders that we stand. And may we draw from the wisdom they've gained in their lives to make a brighter and more possible future. I call out to the energy of the earth, the deep, deep, oldest ancestor for life as we know it here on this planet. We call out to the earth to be with us here today as a firm foundation under our feet. Help us to stand where it is that we must stand in our life to reach out from that place to connect with others and to find ourselves belonging in that great lineage from ancestors through the present to the descendants and with those of our spirit family standing around us. Let us be connected and to understand the oneness of all living things on this planet. We call out to the energy of the sky above to bring us light, to bring us breath, to bring us blessing and generosity and the benevolence of this universe. We call out to the energy above to bring us protection, that we are held well in our discussion here today, that we might speak what needs to be spoken, that our ears may be open to hear what we need to hear, that each one of us may be inspired here today by what transpires in our hour here together. And finally, I call out to the energy of the heart, that unique and special place within each one of us, that is that place that the passions of our deep purpose in this life can merge with the clarity of our mind and come together to guide us forward in our life from the heart to live our soul's true purpose in this lifetime and to do it now while we can enjoy the fruits of those labors. So with all the spirits gathered around us, we call them all in to hold us well in our time here today. And I want to welcome our guest, Betsy Bergstrom. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you, Christina. It's a pleasure to be here. So all of you who are listening today, Betsy has joined us to talk about heart-centered shamanic healing. Um, Betsy is a full-time shamanic teacher and practitioner who has studied with shamans and healers from many cultures, and she has been working in various fields of alternative healing for nearly 20 years. And she has wonderful things to share with us. For those of you that are on your computers and want to check out Betsy's site, it's BetsyBergstrom.com. That's pretty easy for you all to find. And so there's information there about Betsy, about her classes, about her perspective on shamanic healing, all of that background stuff is there. But now we have Betsy live and in person. So the show is live here today, so you're all welcome to call in or to send emails. And first, um, I want to just ask you, Betsy, as you look back over your life, what do you feel are the pivotal pivotal points that brought you to the practitioner and the woman that you are today? Um, that's a great question. The you know one of the first things that I think of in response to that is the connection that I had with my grandmother and her interest in spiritual matters and the fact that she married a Native American man and her. Um, her viewpoint as a person who was of Scottish descent was that there are many, many different kinds of beings in this world that we live in, and it's really important for us to be aware that we share this earth and we share this world with those beings. And so that was something that she wanted me to be aware of from a very early age. It's a great gift from her. It was a great gift from her. Um, she would put us to bed at night with the prayer from ghoulies and ghosties, long-leggedy beasties and things that go bump in the night, may the good Lord preserve you. And then, which was kind of a scary prayer, but then she would say, and just because you can't see them, it doesn't mean they can't see you. <laughs> She's wonderful. Well, you know, it gave us, you know, I'm talking about myself and my siblings, the perspective that um, we needed to be aware that there were other kinds of beings and energies. And, and through her work with the Spiritualist Church, she was very interested in guides, in ascended masters, in angels, and in, in different divine beings. And so from an early age, 
and also because of the Native perspective that she was connected to. From an early age, I was introduced to my power animals and my guides and was really encouraged to work with them in very practical ways. So they didn't tell you to stop talking to your imaginary friends when you got to be about six? No, they told me to be discreet about it. Um, my father was in the military, so we had to be very discreet about it. Um, but we were encouraged to really work with those power animals and those guides. And, you know, for instance, I remember as a child coming home from school and saying that I, I think someone had taken my lunch or my lunch money. And when I told that to my grandmother, she said, well, didn't you have your power animal watching it for you? <laughs> and I oh, said, Grandma. No. Yeah, I said, no. And she said, well, what do you expect? Oh, beautiful. Yeah, just the practicality of that, that there are so many different kinds of beings who are here to support us in what seem like the most mundane ways as well as some of the most important ways in our life. Well, it's beautiful because it also set you up to see it in the mundane, and I think one of the greatest challenges is contemporary people are set up to see it all with trumpets and angels and drama or they don't take it seriously and it's a beautiful gift to sort of set you up to see it in the everydayness of things. I I really agree with you and and when my grandmother grew up speaking Scots Gaelic and in one of the things that she told us was that in Gaelic there are words for different forms of the second sight or you know these different abilities to perceive not only ordinary reality but non-ordinary reality and so she really encouraged us to understand what our own particular gifts were and how we really could connect with the world around us. And that's something that I do with my students is, is help them to understand how they're already hardwired to experience the world. And I think that this, these senses that we have that some people think of as extra senses are really a part of our survival gear for being able to be in the body and to live and not just survive, but to really thrive as well. Yes. So you had this fabulous grandmother that now we're all in love with. <laughs> and so what were the other big things that moved you to where you are now? Well, as um, as life went on, you know, one of the things, and as my uh, connection to spirit um, stayed very much alive, one of the things that I began to be aware of was that there were all kinds of energies that, really seem to be associated with places and be associated with people. And some of them seemed very beneficial and some of them seemed less beneficial. And, and it really, um, I guess that, that ability or that uh, perception of mine caused me to want to know what it was that was going on. And um, in my 20s, my mother was uh, diagnosed with and became very ill with cancer. And one of the things that I observed as she was weakening in that disease process was that she started to undergo these amazing changes. You know, depending on who came into the room, there might be a different, it seemed like a whole different version of mother there. And I was always wondering at the time what it was that I was seeing. And what my, you know, my later work in shamanism revealed to me was that some of the things that I was seeing were truly aspects of her, but I also think some of the things that I was seeing were um, other beings or other energies who were with her. Mm-hmm. And so, it, you know, I remember at that time really wanting to know what it was that I was seeing and um, being aware that some of the things that I perceived with her or around her I thought were actually causing a lot of trouble for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, one of the things I've noticed, particularly with people with these old age onset illnesses, is their capacity to manage their boundaries is so diminished, and yet they still have, technically, they still have free will, and so these beings can kind of wreak havoc with that situation. Yeah, I think so. I think as the body weakens sometimes that, you know, you're right, that the boundaries get diminished. Yeah. It's a, it takes a lot of energy to be human in a good way. No. <laughs> so what were the big challenges for you? Um, the big challenges in which way, Christina? Well, just to become who you are and be able to really be that woman in the world. I would say um, that kind of taking things public was one of the first big challenges. You know, that I was fortunate enough to be a person who was encouraged to be aware that 
spirits really do exist, that there really are helping spirits and there are non-helpful spirits around. And um, and I had had experiences of meeting the angelic, and, and those were very powerful experiences for me. And when, you know, early in life, um, through my grandmother and through the spiritualist church, I was told that I would become a healer at some point in time, and I really didn't understand what that meant when I was a teenager. And so in my 20s, I did other things. I had a career in clothing design. And, you know, in my early 30s, the spirits, really called me back in, you know, and started coming to me in very powerful ways. And so one of the really big challenges that I experienced was feeling the, the power coming so so strongly to me when that happened. And as, as female family members died, because I have, you know, this kind of spiritual lineage, I believe, some of their power would come to me. And so some of the biggest challenges I faced was integrating that power as it came to me. I didn't really know what it was. You know, even though I had in some ways more awareness than maybe many people have, I still didn't really understand what was happening to me. Did you have those moments of, this isn't my plan, I'm being a clothing designer? <laughs> yes, but I also felt that somewhere inside me was the sense of um, that I'm supposed to be doing something, and I didn't really know what it was, and I loved clothing and I loved the design, but I also felt that that there would come a time when something would unfold, and sure enough, it did. So what? how did you end up? really moving into this this heart-centered, shamanic, depossession work? I mean, what, what kind of moved you into that aspect of healing? Well, um, you know, as, as any kind of energetic healer or spirit healer, people come with different kinds of illnesses to you. And when I began to be aware sometimes that, that perhaps like my mother, sometimes the illness that was going on for a person might have had at least some some of, some be somewhat caused by interfering influences, you know, I began to be aware that I needed to learn how to help these beings move along. And in the beginning, I was really motivated by a strong desire to help my client, and I just wanted those beings out of there. And so, you know, through through connection with angelic spirits and my own helping spirits and guides, I would, you know, I'd be able to get them from the person. And, and in a sense, my desire in the beginning was just to sort of lob them across into the light. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I was really very focused on the client. You know, that was the person who was coming to me. And as time went on and, and as it, I began to get a bit of a reputation for being able to do this work and more cases like this came into me, um, I began to, you know, have the sense, this very, you know, nagging feeling that I was really missing something. And I didn't really know what. I kept asking and I kept asking to be shown, is there something more to this? And, and you know, in the beginning I was also very fearful of this work. You know, I mean, I was very leery of it. I was nervous. I really, I also felt very powerfully protected and, and aided by my helping spirits. And so at a certain point I would feel like, okay, I know that this is going to go well, but my body would be afraid, which I think our bodies are wired to feel a little bit nervous about the uncanny. Um, but this nagging feeling went on for a while. And then a, a, a client came to me who had had really a horrific childhood and, and had been exposed to some really um, rough, really, you know, rather dark things. And, and I was aware that she had multiple possession. And over time, we worked with the different possessing spirits. But eventually there came a time when I was aware that the really big spirit was going to be something that I was going to be facing. Mm-hmm. So we'll come back and talk more about this heart-centered shamanic depossession with Betsy Bergstrom after this break. Thank you all for listening. Go ahead and send an email to your friends and get more people listening as well. Thank you, Betsy, and we'll continue with this um, story and uh, this heart-centered work that Betsy's doing in the world. Welcome back, everyone. This afternoon, we are speaking with Shaman Betsy Bergstrom, and she is talking about her heart-centered shamanic depossession work. And um, you're welcome to download shows in the archive on the Voice America site, my page on the Voice America site, or through iTunes. There are lots of shows talking about shamanic healing in general and talking about this aspect of shamanic healing, which is, we've talked about it before, is the energy out aspect of shamanic healing. How do we remove things from a place they don't really belong 
and restore them to wherever it is they really do belong. So we're going to get back to Betsy's story that she was telling um, before we went to this break where she was working with this person who had had a challenging history, and you'd already begun some work with her? Yes, the depossession work was uh, sequential. I had already um, had the opportunity to clear away some, you know, to help go to the light, some different beings who were with her. And um, and then one day she walked into my office and I thought, wow, this is really the day um, this amazing energy was presenting from her. Her eyes went absolutely slate gray. Um, she lost consciousness and awareness of herself very quickly. Uh, quite a bit of my process work with depossession is through dialogue. And so she was able, I was able to begin to communicate with the being who was with her. And my helping spirits came in so powerfully that I was actually a little afraid. You know, I was thinking, oh man, they're coming in so powerfully. This is going to be something really big. And, and what happened in it was that this it became literally phenomenal. I mean, just all the things that you might read about in terms of um, possession cases when they are really strong. I mean, things started um, flying around in the room. Music started coming out of uh, an unplugged boombox. Um, you know, just a lot of different little phenomenal, or several different phenomenal things happening. And all of those were serving to unnerve me, you know, just to be, really be aware of the power of this being. And um, and my inner guidance, my helping spirits just kept saying, you know, just remember the light, remember the light. And they, over a process, it actually took several days, but over a process of time, what they guided me through, my helping spirits and the angels, was a process in which I was able to help this very powerful, very chaotic um, being to be aware that even though he thought that he was literally demonic, you know, a demon, that he had within him the light of God in his heart. You know, it took us through a process of uncovering that light, and it came as such a shock to this being that he actually, you know, through, you know, speaking through this client of mine, went through this you really literally hours of remorse, you know, for the history of things that he had done in his time. And it was very difficult for him to accept, but the process of unfolding and uncovering this light that is inherent in all beings was so powerful that he really couldn't stop the process from happening. And the angelic help was so very powerful, and the love that was given to this being was so amazing um, that I was shocked. I was really amazed. And when the light within his heart continued to grow and to grow and to grow, what happened was he unfolded so easily and so naturally from this woman that there was just no distress for her whatsoever. You know, no convulsions, no, you know, anything that you might... Um, imagine could happen in a case of possession this big. And he unfolded so easily from her and became this absolutely transcendent being that the angelic beings recognized as, in a sense, a fallen angel. Mm -hmm. And what they, you know, what I learned from that experience is, is that every being that I encounter is actually a being who and, you know, in their heart somewhere is the light of God, the light of the one source, whatever words that we might want to use for it. My particular words are the light of the creator. And I have never been disappointed. I've never found, no matter what kind of being it might be, I've never not found that light. And when that light is allowed to unfold and to grow, the depossession actually happens very naturally. You know, in many shamanic cultures, depossession is, can be quite brutal, you know, that they're beaten out of the person, so the client actually suffers not only from the possession, but they suffer from the treatment they receive in exorcism or in clearing. And um, and sometimes they're just cast out of a person. And for me, I always thought, well, that's not really taking care of it. We want to make sure, A, that the suffering, I call them suffering beings, that the suffering being can't return. And, you know, B, we want to... Um, make sure that the client isn't damaged in any way, shape, or form. And also, I want to be okay at the end of the day as well. You know, and, and what I've also learned through this process is that by being there in that compassionate viewpoint, in being aware that no matter what kind of being I've encountered, no matter what kind of 
havoc or damage that they've created, that they have that light of God in them, it means that essentially they have a ticket to the light and that they there is a redemptive process for them that is quite amazing to witness and to experience. And it's just given me, you know, just this, first of all, it's just caused my fears to go away completely. And secondly, it's given me such hope for not only humanity, but for all beings. Thank you, Betsy. I want to take a moment here and just tie listeners back into a couple other shows because I feel there's so much power in this in the simple yet challenging to live idea that you're presenting that there is a God force or a light, whatever we want to call it, inside every living thing. And this is something we talk about on this show a lot. Part of part of that is the toxicity. This is the toxicity of that lie of separation, that we are somehow separate from God, that we're somehow fallen away from that. And it, it to believe that allows that fear in, and to choose to believe in the oneness of things is what gives us the strength to do what Betsy's talking about. And so, you know, if there's one thing listeners could do today, choose to spend the rest of the day looking for that ticket to the light inside everything and everyone, no matter how nasty the encounter, because it is there, and it's our choice to choose to see life that way. It's, no one's ever going to be able to prove it one way or the other. It's just your choice as a person to see things that way. And I want to tie this into one other thing, which is our the episode when we talked about initiation, because what Betsy's talking about is really challenging work, and it speaks to why the spirits are looking for a person with a clear heart to do shamanic work, because that person's heart has to be available in in a in a situation like Betsy's describing, which is transformational for her as well, to feel the love and to feel it powerfully enough to overcome natural, ordinary, uh, practical fears in the situation and and trust the message. <clears throat> trust the message to believe in the love that's there, believe in the the spirit force energy that's there and to do what the spirits are saying to go there, which in the moment seems really impractical. <laughs> but but to do it. And so I just want to say, well, thank you to Betsy, but also to help you as listeners understand this all fits together in a great big picture that does make sense, that there is a reason that we need to cultivate these courageous hearts because to see that spirit force in everything is not always easy, but it is there. And if you're going to believe in oneness, you can't believe in oneness selectively. That's really true. You know, oneness means oneness, period. <laughs> you know, it's not negotiable. Um, so anyway, we're kind of coming up on a break here. Um, but this is, it's just such a beautiful story. But as we're kind of coming into this break, Betsy, what, just for listeners who may have never heard about deep possession ever in their entire lives until today, um, what are the kinds of energies that you're finding within people that need to be moved on to somewhere healthier for everybody? Well, it was a surprise to me to find that the most common possessing being was actually a person who somehow had not made it out of this realm into the light, had not crossed over. And so that was very sobering for me to be aware of also that, you know, these are not just dark beings. These are lost people. And and then the awareness that other kinds of beings who are, you know, who have attached to people are in some ways, they're all people too. It's really encouraged me to see them as different kinds of people. Um, sometimes there are other kinds of middle world spirits that perhaps have attached to people, um, sometimes animal spirits as well. Hmm. And, and after the break, I can tell you maybe a few more kinds of spirits as well. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Betsy. So, everyone, I hope you'll come back after the break, um, and we'll continue talking about heart-centered shamanic depossession with Betsy Bergstrom, and her website is BetsyBergstrom.com to make it easy for you to all go check her out while we have this break. Thank you all for listening. Welcome back, everyone. We are talking today with shaman Betsy Bergstrom, and she's talking about heart-centered shamanic depossession. And as we went to this last break, we were talking about different kinds of energies that present in people that need to be removed and sent on to wherever everybody can be healthier. I think you were talking about animals? 
Yes, sometimes even people can be um, possessed by animal spirits, and and one of the things that can really cause a person or a being or an animal who, you know, a person who is alive or an animal who is alive to not really cross over into the light is the attachment that people might have for that person because they love them. Mm-hmm. And literally sometimes those attachments cause people to not be able to leave, and so we can be then possessed sometimes by our own ancestors or people that we love because we've simply connected to them so strongly. And the same thing can happen with animals um, where we love them so much we don't let them go, literally. Mm-hmm. And Or sometimes even our desire to help beings who then die in our care can sometimes cause them to, you know, stay with us. You know, And people who are deeply, deeply caring and have beautiful, luminous hearts are sometimes mistaken for the light. Oh, interesting. By beings, you know, they, they see that clear heart, they see that clear light. And and so if anybody was ever worried about that, you really just could invite the angels to come and help the beings to move along and just, you know, really get clear within yourself that you're not that light. You carry your light, but there's another light for those to go to. <laughs> I may be light, but I'm not that light. <laughs> I'm not that light, and I'm also not on the menu, so... Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, Betsy, let's, um, I wondered if you could share with us your ideas about curse unraveling, what that, what that means for you in the first place, but then also kind of how you understand it from a heart-centered perspective. Okay. Um, the, in my practice, um, people were coming to me thinking that they might have a possessing spirit that was causing some of the problems that were occurring in their life. And what I began to see sometimes was that it might not be actually a being. And when I think of a possession by a being, I think of a being where there's a soul, you know, and, and, and also a, a need for that being to attach to somebody to get life force um, or to have a place to be. And so I was puzzled as what is it that's going on because they seem to be possessed and yet there's not really a being there. And what I would find in some instances is that they were possessed by thought forms. They were possessed by these kind of packets of energy that had intention that might have, well, it had... Um, kind of a message. It might have been intentional, it might have been unintentional, and a lot of energy, and they could actually act as an overshadowing program over people. And so what I discovered in my research that in some traditions that's called obsession rather than possession. It's like possession by um, by thought form, as I said. And then people started coming to me with curses. You know, we're traveling all over the world these days, and people are going to exotic places and, you know, occasionally um, running into difficulties. And so people are coming back with curses that they feel they felt that they had picked up in these different cultures. And one of the things that, you know, we as Americans aren't always aware is that um, that cursing is something that has has been part of almost every culture from the beginning, you know. Um, and curses are something that can be intentional or unintentional. An intentional curse means when somebody is really wanting to put a whammy on somebody, they're wanting to harm them or, or cause some kind of an effect to happen. And, and so they have a strong intention, and I believe that they have something that fuels it, whether it's their own life force or... In some instances, you know, people might use, um, you know, like killing an animal, a chicken or something like that, and infusing the curse or the intention with the life force of that animal. And so these things are then can be sent to a person and can begin to have an effect over them that can create illness or create whatever sometimes the intention or the disturbances. And in looking at curse unraveling, I'm a, I'm a Capricorn person, you know, a double Capricorn, and so I have a way of looking at even the most supernatural. In you know, I have a desire to see what are the practical ways, or you know, how is it? How can I understand this in its in its component parts? And what I began to be aware was that curses, whether they were intentional, as we've just been talking about, or unintentional, which I think are actually the most common forms of curses, that they're they're particular components in them. One is the intention, one is the life force or the energy, and one is the, the direction or the, you know, another is where they're going to be sent to or, or where they're meant to land. And because they're packets of intention with life force, they can actually create havoc for people. And, you know, a cur- common curses in this culture are, is the curse of you're no good 
or the curse of I don't want to be here, like a self-curse, I want to die. And if we renew that, if we keep thinking that, feeling the power of it, putting a lot of energy into it, we can actually create, in a sense, kind of a self-curse. Or we could say something to somebody um, repeatedly, somebody who's in a relation, we're in a relationship with, or a parent of, or, you know, you're you're such a, you know, name that like you're a slob, you're a quitter, you're a whatever, and that actually can become a curse that we, in a sense, kind of put on a person. But then it becomes a self curse. It's like the person that that hears it, takes it in, and then whenever they do something that might fit in with whatever has been told to them, then they they sort of renew it, and so it can gain a lot of power. And um, I think that we're, you know, all of us hampered by these various thought forms, maybe not actual intended curses that people have set on us, um, but maybe something that, you know, somebody either, you know, very unintentionally or in a moment of anger or some kind of strong emotion maybe set into motion and can be affecting us. And when I began to look at the component parts, I realized, you know, there's an idea, which is an old idea. You know, we don't really want to think we're a quitter or a slob or whatever it might be anymore. And if we invested energy into it ourselves, you know, like I had one client whose father had called her a quitter. And she actually was super creative and super adventurous. She just wanted to explore. She wanted to try this kit and that kit. And, you know, I wanted, you know, knit and sew and crochet and do all these different things and paint. And then she'd be to get what she needed out of it and wouldn't finish it. And so, you know, her depression era parent really felt like she was a quitter. It took her a while as she began to unravel that, you know, when she realized that she wasn't able to do some of the things that she wanted to do in her life and she was afraid to start new things or she was blocked in some of the things that she wanted to do. It, we tracked it back to this thing that was said to her when she was a young child. And she realized that she renewed it herself regularly. So what we realized we could do was we could go to the moment when that curse began, pull the power out of it. Because in shamanism, you know, you're not, you're not stuck by time. You can go back in time. So we go back to the moment when that, that thought was put in motion with a lot of power by her father and pull his life force out. Well, he's no longer alive, so that life force is just released to the universe. But she had renewed it again and again, and there was a lot of her life force in that thought form. And so that life force was pulled out of that idea, that old idea that she doesn't want to carry forward anymore, cleansed and given back to her. And she just has all this sparkle and all this life now and, and a renewed ability to, um, to explore and be the way that she's really meant to be, which is so creative. That's beautiful. So, Betsy, we have an email from a listener. And they're, they're really wonderful, very practical questions. Then um, the first is just if you could share with people kind of simply, um, what, would, what are simple symptoms a person might feel to know that they might be possessed? That's a good question. Um, sometimes it can be uh, a feeling like you have, you're of two minds. You know, it's kind of, on my intake form, one of the questions that I ask people is, do you experience negative self-talk? You know, are you always trying to manage a voice in your head? Um, sometimes people know that, that they felt fine at one point in time, and then there was a day when all of a sudden they didn't feel fine. So then there was an immediate change that happened for them. Um, when possession really begins to take hold for a person, I want people to be aware that usually you aren't, taken over completely by some being, so much as you begin to be overshadowed by some of the emotional sense of that being, the emotional feelings of that being, some of the beliefs of that being. So if all of a sudden you don't just don't feel like yourself in some kind of way, you feel, best way I can put it, is overshadowed, that might be one way. Sometimes possession is noticed in an auditory fashion where you're literally hearing a voice and you're talking to that voice. Sometimes people feel it as a sensation in the body. Um, sometimes it's just, a, you know, it can be as simple as a change that, that shouldn't be there. You know, that you, you really literally were one way, one minute, and, and soon after that you, you just were not yourself. You know, that feeling of you're beside yourself, you're not yourself. If you feel those things, sometimes it can be that maybe an energy has moved in along with you. So the next question is, how does a person become possessed? Well, you know, one of the things that um, that we want to be aware of is that when, for instance, uh, if a person dies and they don't cross out of this, this realm and they don't cross over into the light, 
their body goes away and they're just energy at that point. And their energy and consciousness and the soul is still there. And we seem really solid, but the actual fact is what we know from science is that we're really all of these molecules in motion. So we really are energy ourselves. And so a, a being can come and can start, um, you know, just being in our energy field sometime in our aura. Or it can, because we're not really solid, I know it sounds funny, but we're not. We're not really solid. That being can begin to sort of enmesh with us. And as it enmeshes with us, it could be, uh, you know, for some people, that they could have a possessing um, spirit with them, and it lodges somewhere in the body, and there is no emotional content, there's no verbal content, it's just a blockage in the body that no chiropractor, no acupuncturist, no healer can move for them. So we're going to continue with these questions because they're very practical, good questions. But as Betsy's last answer to how do you become possessed reminds us, this is why everybody needs a personal practice. So you know what you feel like. Exactly. So you can notice when you're not feeling like yourself. Exactly. (laughs) All the more reason to get out of bed and do your morning practice. So with that note, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with Betsy Bergstrom after this break. Thank you all for listening. Welcome back, everyone. Our hour is just flying away. We're having so much fun here with Betsy Bergstrom talking about heart-centered shamanic depossession. And we have this lovely list of questions from a listener, and they're very practical. Um, so the last one is we were talking about how does a person become possessed. And what I was talking about was sort of the mechanics of possession. It's like we can we can be possessed because we actually are energy, and so energy can come in and mesh with us. So how do you prevent possession? Mm-hmm. Is the next question. Oh, is it? Okay. You fill yourself with light. You know, you, you realize and you remember that you have the light of the creator, the God light, the light of the one source within you. And, um, and you keep yourself light. And as you, you know, whatever practice it is that you do, that actually causes your energy field to become much more powerful and less able to be penetrated by any being. They might be attracted to you, but you can also sort of put a shingle out saying, go to the light. I'm not that light. You know, but you let yourself become very, very big in light, and that will help you become very invulnerable to possession. So the important thing about that, everybody, is make sure you don't do that in a, what I call a one-off way by praying to the light of this other thing that you believe is the light. The important thing is to do literally what Betsy said. Infuse yourself. Allow yourself to be one with that light. Allow it to radiate through you and your heart. Your heart is designed for that. It's its job. And it's made stronger by it. And it's important, especially if you're not remotely inclined to shamanism and you're a more religious person, there's nothing that's equally or sometimes even more powerful. But don't get into this one-off position where you're praying to that thing over there, but to let it be within you, truly within you, and to infuse you, and to literally, take Petsy's words, literally. The last question on our list is, are some people more susceptible than others? Yes, they are. Um, Some people are... You know, they, they, their energy might be a little bit weakened because of a lack of vitality. You know, many of us are not eating live foods so much anymore, and that the live food vitality keeps our energy field very vibrant. Some of us are attracted to, um, you know, we're, we're not infusing ourselves with light, and maybe we're attracted to um, watching horror things or something like that. I want people to remember that we're very magnetic. You know, what we put our attention on, we actually attune to, and so we can be attracting more of that. So if you are attuned to horror things, then you're actually attuning your vibration to that, and so beings could be attracted to you for that reason. You know, when you attune to light, to the sacred, to the divine, then you you actually bring your resonance, you know, the the vibratory resonance of your energy body and your body itself out of a vibration that would allow you to even be possessed. Sometimes people have injuries. I'm sorry. Sometimes people have injuries that would allow, you know, kind of an opening in the energy body. And sometimes people are mediumistic, you know, like they themselves are sensitives. And um, possessing spirits really like sensitives. And they like them because... Um, and it's natural and intuitive for them to be attracted to a sensitive person. It's as though there's more places for them to plug in and to have experience through a sensitive. 
And I think that it's important for you sensitive people out there to understand that some of you have done a really good job for most of your life passing as a not sensitive person. (laughs) (laughs) And you need to come out of the closet and recognize that, you know, culturally we are taught and we try for many reasons to shut that stuff down and act like a normal person and, you know, whatever normal means. And those of you that know underneath it all that you're a sensitive person, you're going to be better off, you know, happier and safer in the world to honestly embrace yourself, accept those qualities and get some training so that you know what you're dealing with, you know who you are and what you're dealing with. And don't just keep pretending. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And another thing that we, that anyone can do is they can really, in, all of us have totem animals. We all have power animals. And, you know, it's an agreement between humans and, and animals. And so um, you can invite your totem animal, imagine them, envision them, invite them to drop their form and have that, that totem animal merge with you. And that will enliven your energetic field, too. That was going to be my next question. But, yes, I mean, even if you don't know who your helping spirits are, you can still talk to them and ask them to do that. It's, their, it's kind of like their fundamental baseline job with us. And the angels are great beings to do that with also. You know, that's many of the, the spirits that assist beings to cross if they're, if they're wanting to cross upward to the light rather than to the light in some other direction. Are, you know, they're assisted by angels. And so if we really let ourselves be protected by the angelic beings, and we all have angel helpers too, then that really can keep you very protected as well. I like them too. They're kind of funny. Yes. <laughs> Very um, funny sense of their humor. Yeah, there's a another um, email has come in, and and so we're one. I'm wondering if you feel that there is an increase in the number of suffering beings, or is there just an increase in the number of beings in general as we well the planet? That's, yeah, that's a hard one to answer. Um, I think that I think that there may be an increase in suffering beings because I think that in Western culture we've become so unacquainted with death and so, you know, we don't have very many um, death practices that ensure that beings cross over at their time. And we also, um, you, you know, I mean, it's like if you think about it, if, you're, if your relative dies and you have a funeral or a memorial for them, that's just as much for them as it is for you. Yeah that lets them know they're dead and that something has changed. And so when the assisting angels come to help them go or whoever comes to help them, they're ready to go. But if they don't have those observances, sometimes they don't know. And and if we're really attached to them, sometimes they can't go. And I think that just with sheer numbers and with a lack of, of you know, psychopomp people, you know, that's a form of shamanism where the shaman is the one who makes sure that the soul of the person crosses over. Since we haven't, you know, we don't, that's not a real strong part of our culture. I think maybe there are more spirits now. And if anybody wants to explore that more fully, we talked about that at length in all of the episodes that are archived about the ancestors and our responsibility as the living with the dead to help them to cross over and, and if they haven't died in a good way, to reorganize things for them so they can still cross over. Um, Betsy, we're out of time, which I can't believe, but we are. Oh my gosh. Um, Thank you so much for being with us here today. And I encourage everyone to check out Betsy's website, BetsyBergstrom.com, and to really look into this heart-centered shamanic depossession. Um, There is just so much not love in the world that there is no reason for us to not go to those in the world who are doing whatever it is that needs to be done, whether it's your depossession or your taxes, but they're doing it from the heart. That's something as heart-centered as where y'all need to vote with your dollars. <laughs> so, Betsy, thank you so much, and um, maybe we can get you on again another time. I'd be honored to come back. Thank, thank you. All right, everyone. So let's look at um, what this what this whole lovely show Betsy's offered us here, especially with the help of the questions that came in, what is telling us about protection and doing depossession work, and put that in the context of these truly challenging times that we're we're living in now, 
When there is really a call for this kind of sustained activism on multiple fronts for most of us, there's not only our own personal work and our own uh, spiritual work that we might be doing, um, but it, now it's asking us to engage politically and directly, socially, and to truly deal with the fabric um, of our culture and places where, you know, perhaps we saw our spiritual life being somewhat more personal, somewhat smaller. And so what we're really looking at uh, here by redoing these um, this series of shows on protection is how do we think about this information in the context of this time that we're in? Um, so I'd like to connect what we've just um, heard Betsy talking about also with the show from last week, which was about um, creating a true working relationship with spirit. Um, because really here at the essence of what Betsy is talking about is having a working relationship with the divine light, period. You know, that, that this is really about moving, uh, continuing to grow in our practices, not only relationships with our spirit help, potentially angelic help, however it is that we think of the help that we have, but then with their assistance moving on um, to begin to create these true um, embodied intimate relationships with other energies like this light that she's talking about, the divine light, I guess I would call it. Um, in my own cycle work, we also do the same with elemental energies um, and the earth as well, so that our, our relationship, our deep, intimate relationship with the earth balances and energizes the dynamic with the relationship with the divine light, which is usually perceived of as coming from above. Okay. So, and of course, for those of you that love Sandra Ingerman's work and are, are you know, find the beauty in that as well, um, you know, a lot of what infuses uh, Sandy's work, especially her transfiguration work, and much of the large-scale, you know, global work she's doing around ceremony is work with divine light and your own, um, in, in you, and you as the practitioner being encouraged to embody this light in the world. Okay, so... My question, though, here, and I've asked this before on a different show, but relative to these beautiful teachers that many of you are working with that are teaching us about being heart-centered and embodying the divine light, what happened then? Uh, why did y'all need Sandy to create a ritual or ceremony for you during the time that the water protectors were taking action at Standing Rock? You know, and so... My point in, in replaying these shows right now is how do you begin to move from depending on your teachers to create the way to take action in the world into, being, uh, into embodying these teachings more fully to begin to manifest your own act, uh, activism in the world? And that is actually a twofold um, action. It is not only the activism that we put out in the world, but then it is also the self-care that balances that, kind of the yin and the yang of it. And for me, this is very much like that shift that you make when you actually start practicing some of your yoga that you practice in class at home. And, you know, you, re you begin to embody the teachings that you are learning, whatever they might be, by taking on your own authority to guide you in the actions of those teachings in your everyday life. And you don't depend on your teacher to guide you. Okay, so back to what I was saying. So, so this is really the time that we all need to put our years of shamanic practice with our beautiful and very generous teachers into action by really shouldering the work that is ours to do on our own shoulders. Okay, and so I want to highlight a few of the things that Betsy um, spoke to in this show from, you know, 2009, actually, and it's still so profoundly or even more perhaps profoundly timely. timely. So one of the things Betsy does not talk about directly on the show is her own personal practice, but she certainly speaks um, much of the show is talking about 
to be able, for example, to have perspective on what is normally used, so you might notice if you have taken on some kind of hitchhiker, is you need to have some sort of personal practice that sets that awareness of your own baseline in your own consciousness. And so, like I said, one of the things Betsy didn't really talk about is the fact that, yes, she's a shamanic practitioner and teacher, and she does beautiful work shamanically in the world, but she's also a practicing Buddhist. She has a really... Um, rich, robust, solid, and time-consuming personal practice that helps her to cultivate this um, deeply embodied and robust, big relationship with divine light. And um, it's a daily practice. You know, she doesn't go months and months without engaging in in the sitting, in nourishing of her own relationship with that light so that she's able easily to call it forth on the behalf of a client. Um, and so my point in that is in this time, when so much is going on in our world that is the the direct expression of hatred and cruelty, um, entitlement, um, greed, you know, these various things out in the world that really, you know, get our hackles up and we want to respond and we want to create change, you know, one of the many things different teachers have been guiding us to do first is deepen your own practice first so that you have the roots to then reach out into the world and do good work. And so as Betsy is saying in this show, know what you feel like so that you don't lose yourself in that activity. You don't lose yourself to the complex energies that are involved in that, which could very well be invasive energies by their own nature. Okay, no, it's number two, right? Know what divine light feels like and engage in your own direct relationship with it, meaning you allow it to fill your own energy body and you know what that feels like um, in relationship to you and your own little piece of that divinity. The other thing she says in terms of maintaining, if you're going to maintain some kind of sustained effort out there in the world, um, you need to look at your diet. What What is your diet in terms of food? Is it vital? Is it the kind of diet that is a comfort food diet that actually feeds your emotional upset? And it's easy to get upset about what's going on in the world today. But if you're feeding your emotional upset, you are most likely not feeding your vitality. And it's the vitality that you need to make sure you're not permeable and more vulnerable to the anger and the deceit and the lies and the kinds of energies out there that you would would want to stand uh, against or – yeah, against. Okay. What is your diet of stories? You know, what media do you consume? What are the stories you indulge in? Do they support you as a person of light in the world? Um, as Betsy said, you're a magnetic being. You attract the stories that you fill your mind with. So you may need to consider that. You may need to consider the amount of time that you spend on social media and what you're reading and how you dive in to, you know, go down different rat holes in, um, on the internet about things. Is that actual research that is supporting your activism in the world or are you simply indulging your anger, your frustration, your um, desire to point fingers and to blame? I mean, it's, 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 um, it's all very human, and yet if you're listening to the show, you're the kind of person who's been drawn to shamanism, and shamanism gives us skills, and those skills gives us the ability to be better humans and respond in a different way. Okay, so uh, number four, Betsy said, understand that we're all permeable. Every single one of us is capable of taking on energies we'd rather not. And so the important thing is to take daily action to maintain your boundaries at, at, with an understanding that you're an energy person in an energy world. Not a day goes by without a challenge to our boundaries. And so we actually need to have some boundaries. And then 
this this goes into the whole part of the show where she's talking about working with your helping spirits, your animal helping spirits in particular, her lovely story about her childhood with her lunch money getting stolen because she wasn't working with her protector spirit, working with the angels, you know, working with these energies who have an agreement with humans to help us in our protection. They can't make boundaries for you. You need to have boundaries, which they can then reinforce. And so this is all about understanding how your choice and free will about how you're choosing to position yourself in life can then be augmented by your spirit help. And finally, the piece she says, you know, with sensitive people possessing spirits really like sensitives. And I'm going to have a show in a couple of weeks with Mary Shutan to address this. But the point is... You need to attend to the daily tasks of maintaining your energy body at the level required by your level of sensitivity. Because people that are extreme sensitives, uh, when they get overwhelmed just by the sheer amount of information coming in, they panic. And then the interpretation begins to become colored by that panic and that overwhelm. And everything starts to take on darker and darker shades, which may or may not be real. And so it's very important for people that are sensitive to, to make sure that your energy body maintenance practices are adequate for your level of sensitivity. And so if we are going to sustain our action in the world at this time, we need to have a personal relationship with the light. That, and to, to cultivate that relationship with a distinction between your personal relationship with the light and the every everything else's relationship with the big light right and so to as betsy said don't allow um energies that need to move to the light to just move into your heart and i see this most commonly with those of you that work in hospice and um not necessarily with those in activism but i can see potential problems Though with those people that get angry in their activism, attracting the kinds of energies that are attracted to anger and our extreme frustration. So it's kind of the same, the opposite idea. But, but the point is by not maintaining the light or maintaining the light and not making distinction between yourself and the big light, you attract different kinds of energy and then harbor them and then you become exhausted and fatigued and then you end up with symptoms that the system labels as things like chronic fatigue or adrenal burnout when the ultimate issue is you're just dragging a lot of other energies around. Another element in this that Betsy touched on but I would like to name is going at your spiritual activism uh, from a place of judgment that you are right and they are wrong. And this was the beauty that you saw in Betsy's evolution of her own understanding about the depossession work. Um, you know, our, our judgment about what it is that we are, what, what the focus of our activism is, can cloud our capacity to accurately diagnose that thing. And so, Think about what Betsy said about her own journey from the beginning with her expect her kind of expected understanding of depossession based on a kind of new age contemporary understanding of depossession. Like she said, lobbing things into the light and her evolution um, of moving out of that place, which has got some judgment filtered into it and growing in her understanding that her strongest position as someone doing depossession work is to hold everything as a piece of the light. That's, that's acceptance. That's non-judgment. And so I was actually going to share a story today about my first experience um, with evil, but I think the point, we're kind of running out of time I think I think the same progression is shown in, in in the stories Betsy shared about her own evolution of her understanding around her depossession work and why it is that approaching our activism from a heart-centered place is the strongest position. Um, and so what's important to understand that we didn't talk about is the context of everything she said about depossession is that people are coming to her asking for help. So with the whole dynamic she's discussing changes 
when the person you think needs to be possessed, depossessed isn't asking for help. That when someone is engaging their conscious free will to stay engaged with possessing spirits, it's an entirely different ball game as to whether or not it is your right to step in to depossess them. And so the important thing for each one of us is to cultivate our relationship with the divine light, to do good work, exhausting activism work for the next generations, and do good work to replenish and restore your soul. Fill yourself to restore yourself. Take the time for your relationship with the light, not just so you can use it for others, but for you and your own good heart. And inspire others by how you choose to live, uh, live actively in love with the divine in all things. So thank you everyone for listening this week. I give gratitude to all the helping spirits that have gathered around us, to the earth below, the sky above, and the heart that unites us all. <laughs>